Today we'll be reading from John chapter 2. So before we go to the sermon, shall we all pray? Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time we can open your word. In a time of peace, help us not to take this time for granted. Help us to truly understand your word by your Holy Spirit, to illumine our minds at the same time to enable us to live, to live out the truth that is kept in your word, so that we shall have life, life in your name. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is the young attorney's first case. In the off the slide, she just graduated as top student from a prestigious law school. And so she steps into the middle of the court and she faced the judge. And as she was preparing to make her opening remarks in court to defend a client, there's something very nerve-wracking for her because not just for the first-timer, this attorney actually has autism, autism spectrum disorder. So in her case, she lacks social empathy and she's also hypersensitive to the environment. So the question we ask is this, will her lack of social skills prevent her from being a lawyer to relate with the judge and to relate with a client? And will her hypersensitivity to noise hamper her ability to keep calm and to think clearly? And in her nervousness, she clenches a fist till the knuckles are white. And her boss looks at her with a very worried look. And the client also begins to have doubts. So this is a scene from the first episode of the popular K-drama, Extraordinary Attorney Wu. And for those who know the show, you'll be very familiar with the young lawyer's special greeting when she meets her best friend. You know, we have a ritual calling each other's names, you know? Wu to the young, to the Wu. Dong to the girl, to the rummy. Yeah, and so in every courtroom drama, in every episode, young attorney Wu has to perform her role as a lawyer. So what must she do? Let's look at the slide. And in court, she has to give her opening statement. And then she has to call upon the witnesses to give their testimonies. And then she has to lay out the evidences, cross-examine the eyewitnesses while trying not to look at them in the eye because she's autistic. At the same time, finally gives her concluding remarks before the judge. And however, despite her witnesses, she's also blessed with many things. She's blessed with great strength of a supernormal photographic uh, memory. She's blessed with intelligence. She's also blessed with a very supportive boss who at times they calm her down by saying, whoa, 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 whoa. And so when she's able to overcome her witnesses, then she can perform better than all the other lawyers and she wins the cases, and that's why we call her the extraordinary attorney. And so why are we talking about K-drama this morning? So more importantly, why are we talking about courtroom drama? It's because one of the helpful ways for us to understand the entire Gospel of John is to look at it through the lens of a trial, what the scholars call the trial motive. In other words, the Gospel of John is laid out like a courtroom scene where the author John himself is a skillful lawyer. So first he begins with his opening remarks, John, which is what we term as the prologue in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And there he presents the various witnesses and the testimonials, such as the key witness, John the Baptist. Next slide. So we see in verses 6 to 8, you see, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning light, so that through him all might believe. 
He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Then he also presents the other witnesses like the early disciples whom we encountered last week. And also there was in future the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 and a man who was born blind. And we also have Jesus' own testimony through his many I am statements, seven of them. Like, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, and I am the way, the truth, and life. And like all the other courtroom drama, there's always a scene of a cross-examination where the, the witnesses would dispute among themselves, and this is the disputes between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, and this will be from chapters 5 to 12. And then finally, Jesus himself was questioned by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, for his own testimony. And so as for evidences, what are the courtroom evidences we have? John records a curated list of signs, miracles performed by Jesus. So unlike Wu Yong Wu, the writer John, he is not extraordinary himself, but it is the signs that he presents, these evidences, that are extraordinary. Because these are not just miracles of having miracles. They are signs pointing to something greater. And what do they point at? We continue in chapter 1 verse 18. It says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made himself known. In other words, all the signs are pointing to Jesus' identity. So friends, it is Jesus' identity as God which is on trial here. And so this is reinstated in the concluding remarks, John 20, verse 30 to 31. Next slide. It says this, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so with this established, let us go to the first sign. So it all took place at a wedding, in the turn of the slides, where Jesus was invited, and together with his mother and his disciples. So let me ask you, what do you think is the most embarrassing thing to happen in Asian weddings? That we run out of food for the guests. And that is why for Asians, we always cater more than necessary because we would rather die of food waste than to die of shame. And so something equivalent happened here. They ran out of wine. You see, at this wedding, which is probably the wedding of some distant relative or some friend, and Jesus' mother noticed that they ran out of wine and she empathized with the embarrassment, with the shame. So at this point, we must know that she was already the widow and she always relied on most probably her eldest son, her firstborn, which is Jesus. So she asked her firstborn son, Jesus, with help to help the situation. And so how did Jesus reply to her request? He said in verse 4, Woman, why do you involve me? He replied, My hour has not yet come. So this is a very strange reply, but we need to unpack it. Firstly, why do you involve me? It's because the situation did not concern the mother directly, nor did it concern Jesus directly. And secondly, instead of calling her mother, he called her woman. So this should not be read, my friends, that Jesus was being rude. In fact, he loved her greatly. How do we know? Later on, as we see at the end of the gospel, Jesus, when he was dying on the cross, in his great pain, he still asked his disciples to take care of his mother. Can you turn off the slide? 
And so to understand the situation, how can we look at it another way? In chapter 2 of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus' parents lost him in a crowd during the Passover festival, they finally found him at a temple. And what did he tell them? He said to them, didn't you know I have to be at my father's house? So same thing, he's pointing to his relationship with God. So here when Jesus called his mother woman, he was distancing himself. Not that he doesn't like her, not that he doesn't love her, but he wanted to prioritize his relationship with the Father, the God in heaven, from whom he takes his commands. That is why he said, my hour has not yet come. And this hour in the book of John refers to his death and resurrection, the timing of his death and resurrection. It has not yet come. So already this little exchange between mother and son gives us some insight into his identity. So for those who are not familiar, we find it very strange, right? Why would he have a mother on earth and a father in heaven? You see, in John chapter 1, we read that Jesus is the Word. And he is the Word who was with God and was God. So he is God himself. And at the same time, he's the Word that became flesh. He took on flesh. He was born through a woman so that he can take on our brokenness, our weaknesses. But at the same time, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He has a Father in heaven, God. And so he has a heavenly Father and no earthly Father. So by this time, you need a coffee, I perfectly understand. So being fully man, he's tempted in every way like us. He can know our temptation. But being fully God, he does not sin despite temptations, unlike us. And that is what makes Jesus the perfect representative of us. Because as a man, he knows all our weaknesses. He knows all our struggles. He doesn't despise us despite our failures. But as God, he is sinless, he is perfect. He could die for us on the cross to pay for our sins. So when Jesus' earthly mother asked him to help with the wedding, this is not exactly his mission, and the hour for him to be glorified is not yet. So what will he do? So I remember that when I was a young believer, I just became a Christian, and I helped out at a church friend's wedding. And so I went to film the morning church service, and in the afternoon I spent the whole afternoon editing the video, and then in the evening I had to rush down to the dinner venue to show the wedding video. By then I was so exhausted, and that means that my mind was filled with negative thoughts. So in a taxi ride, I was perfectly silent. I was emo. I was wondering to myself, when will I even get married? And if I do get married, how can I afford such a grand wedding? You know, given that I come from a humble background, like, like a previous batch of PAP candidates, humble background. <laughs> so I can't afford this. But somehow, God knew. God knew what I was thinking. Because the taxi driver, he asked me, he chatted with me, where are you going? He said, oh, you're going to a wedding. So he started telling me about his story. And he said that he had no money when he got married. And he married this Christian girl. And they had a very small wedding in church. But the guests kept arriving. More and more guests came because she was the daughter of some famous Christian guy. And then, true enough, there was not enough food. What could he do? He had no money and there was not enough food. And Food Panda was not invented then. God moved a group of aunties in Christ who noticed the situation and these aunties, they went to the church kitchen 
and they cooked and cooked and cooked the whole evening. And everyone had to fill to eat. On that day, in His great compassion and generosity, God used His body of Christ, His people, to save the wedding. When I heard the story, my morale went higher. Faith was planted in me. We don't have to look at our life circumstances. We look at God who is generous and will take life one step at a time. And 2,000 years ago, when Jesus' mother asked him to save the wedding, what did he do? He did. Even though it wasn't his hour. Out of compassion and generosity, not only did he save the wedding, he turned it into a sign. So he told the servants there to fill some water jars with water and then gave to the master of the banquet to try. And I can imagine the eyes of the master of the banquet pop up in disbelief. He just took one sip because after one sip, he could not believe what he was drinking. It was excellent wine. And he concluded that the bridegroom was very generous. Why? The Bible passage explained that because by the end of a dinner, when most people are drunk, they will normally give you bad wine. But here, they started with good wine and it ended with even better wine. So, of course, we knew that it wasn't the groom who was generous. It was God who was generous. And I did a quick Google research and found that a good bottle of wine like Bordeaux, it takes at least 15 years to age. And here we have water turned into the best vintage wine instantly. And not just one bottle, 100 litres of it. It's like for durian lovers, it's as if Jesus planted one durian seed into the ground and instantly out come a whole plantation of Mao Shangwang ready to harvest, which normally takes seven years, by the way. So what we see here is a great miracle. But not only the miracle was great, it was the sign that how great Jesus was. He was no party pooper. We must get that in our head. He doesn't come to this world to make your life miserable. He comes into the world to gladden our hearts with His generosity. But friends, the generosity of God is not just about the quality or the quantity of wine, but it's in the meaning of the sign. You see, the water jars here used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, and Jesus picked those jars. And what are these jars for? It means that when the wedding guests arrived, servants would pour ladles of water onto their hands to wash them clean. Because in the minds of the Jews, when they came from outside of their home, they have contacted with unclean things, and so they become unclean and they had to wash themselves again before they eat. You must know that this was never part of God's commands for Israel in the Old Testament. It was the Pharisees who took the ceremonial washing rituals of the Jewish priests and then they applied to the whole of Israel. Why? Because they thought that by adding more laws, they will be more obedient to God. But God gave the law through Moses. It was his generosity. It was for Israel to know right from wrong. At the same time, God gave those laws so Israel will know that they will never be able to obey those laws and then they will ask God for forgiveness. But the Pharisees added more and more laws onto themselves, onto others, till it becomes a burden to bear. 
And of all the things to use, so Jesus turned the water in this ceremonial washing jars into wine. Why? So now the guests could no longer wash themselves because there's no more water, but it's full of vintage wine. And Jesus came to show that we never, never add more laws to our lives to prevent ourselves from being unclean. It will never work. Instead, the law of Moses reveals our sinfulness so that you drive us to him at the cross to receive our salvation. We read this in John chapter 1, verse 16 and 18. Can you read for me so I can drink my water? Thank you so much. And in the Old Testament, abundant wine is also the symbol of rejoicing, a great celebration when God not only saves his people, but saves the whole world. In the next slide, it says this, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. So it was symbolic. And by performing this miracle, Jesus showed that he is the one to come to transform the old age of failures, the old age of uncleanness, into the new age of forgiveness, that he is a long-awaited Messiah. And so when the disciples saw this amazing sign, they knew he wasn't an ordinary man, which is why verse 11 says, when what Jesus did here in the Cana of Galilee was the first, the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. That is the first extraordinary sign. So what is the second sign? And a few days later, when it was almost the Passover festival, Jesus went to the temple at Jerusalem. So what is a temple? A quick recap. This temple is the one and only temple, the place chosen by God where his people can meet him in Jerusalem. And the Moses law was given so that when they knew this sin, they all go to the temple and to offer sacrifices and to receive forgiveness from God. And they did this every year, traveling for all over Israel into Jerusalem. And because of a long distance covered for the pilgrimage, it's definitely not convenient for worshippers to carry the animals with them. So they will arrive in Jerusalem and buy the animal sacrifices near the temple. And because they came from all over the Roman Empire, they will be carrying different currency, and so they had to change them with the local currencies, money changes, in order to buy the sacrifices and in order to pay the temple tax. So in the past, all this used to take place at the base of the Mount of Olives, outside of a temple, not in a temple. But when Jesus arrived, he saw that they had moved all this barang-barang pasamalam into the temple courts. He saw that the sellers and the money changers have set up within the courts that was designed by God to allow who? The non-Jews, the Gentiles, to come and worship him. But let us understand. You see, by allowing the commerce to take place within the temple courts, it's very convenient. It's a one-click buy. So it's more convenient for the Jews to come in and buy, and it's definitely more profitable for the merchants and the rulers. So for the Jews, you see, in their mind, it didn't matter if those temple courts are full, because they still have their place in the temple building where they can go in. It's reserved for the Jews. These outer courts were for the Gentiles. They didn't care about them. They wanted to enrich themselves. And naturally, when Jesus saw this, he was outraged. 
Israel was saved to bless the nations. He made a whip out of cords, and in his zeal for God, he drove the sellers and animals and money changers out of the temple court. His words made it very clear what the problem was. Verse 16 says, Get this out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And later on, his disciples remember a line from Psalm 69 verse 9, Zeal for your house will consume me. So why this quotation? Because the psalmist in Psalm 69, he saw that the people were worshipping God wrongly. And when he spoke up against the false worship, he was attacked. He was shamed. And similarly here, Jesus protested against the corrupted worship and he was attacked. And the Jewish leaders wanted to shame him. They asked him, what gave you the authority to do this? Who gave you the authority to chase away the sellers and the money changers? What sign can you give to prove your authority? In response to this, Jesus did not perform any sign. Because they did not ask it out of faith, they asked it to challenge him. So he simply declared, verse 19, Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Hearing this, they found his reply ridiculous. It's like saying, tear down the opposite HDB block and I'll raise up a condominium and TOP in three days. But the writer John wanted us to see beyond the physical temple building. Verse 21, But the temple he has spoken of was his body. What Jesus meant is this, Animal sacrifices are just an annual reminder of sins. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews 10, verse 3-4 Only the blood of Jesus can. And so when he died for us, he gave us his body. There was no more need for the temple. Just as the wine replaced the water, Jesus' body replaced the temple. And to prove to us that his death was effective, he rose from the dead three days later. Verse 22, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. So what John is saying is this, Jesus' death and resurrection is the other extraordinary sign. It is the final extraordinary sign to be performed and only after then, the disciples believed and understood. So meanwhile, John also records for us very strangely in verse 23, that many people saw the signs and they believed in Jesus' name, and this referred to the other miracles that was performed. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them. In other words, he knew that the quality of the faith was corrupted. He knew they were insincere because he knew what was inside of them. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Within us, you may think you have faith, that's what Jesus says, but our hearts are deceitful, lying to ourselves. He knew what was in each person. He knew what was in ourselves, our hearts. And this includes every one of us sitting here. And later on in John 6, we read, the crowds that followed Jesus, they one day they have to walk away because they found his teachings too hard to follow. At the same time, even Peter, Peter said he would die for Jesus. Later on in the book of John, he denied knowing Jesus when he was afraid. 
Jesus knew what is in our hearts. Friends, and that is a condition of our hearts. That is why the Bible never, never, never calls us to follow our heart. Instead, it tells us to be aware, to beware of the deceitfulness of our heart. If we hear the voice of the world to say, follow your heart, follow your passions, we will lose our way in life because we don't even understand our own heart. And our heart is beyond cure. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. God can cure our hearts through Jesus. And that is why we don't follow our hearts, we follow Him. Slowly but surely, extraordinary sign after extraordinary sign, the disciples' faith in Jesus was transformed. It grew. And they encountered His resurrected self, the last extraordinary sign. Their eyes were opened finally. They received the Holy Spirit and have real faith in Him. Only then could they follow Him. And that is why John recorded for us Jesus performed in his, these signs in the Gospel. Verse 20, he says this, Jesus performed many, many signs, many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And in this chapter alone, both the first and the last signs are mentioned. They like acting like a pair of bookends so you know how to proceed with the rest of the book. And but we ask ourselves, what is at stake here? Why should we even want to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? Why is this identity so important? So back to the K-drama, Attorney Wu. Her first case was to defend an old lady who endured many, many years of verbal abuse from her old husband. And one, finally one day, they quarreled so badly in her anger, she took out an iron, not kind of iron your clothes, to hit him on the head. And there was a police case lodged, and unfortunately, the husband died later, with internal bleeding in his brain. So the old lady was charged with attempted murder. She might spend the rest of her life in jail. However, the attorney cross-examined the doctor who, who was there, and found that actually there was no serious wound on the old man's head. And then by going through the police statement made by the old man, we discovered that he had a severe headache even before the quarrel. And so he, she established that the old man actually died from a pre-existing condition rather than being hit on his head with an iron. So with a great relief, the old man was proven not guilty and with a successful trial, when you present the right testimony and the right evidence, the old woman gained back her life. What about us? Let's read John's purpose statement again. John 20, verse 30 to 31, the second part says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So what is at stake here, my friends, is that we can have life in Jesus' name. And in John's Gospel, there are two aspects of this life. There's a concept of the physical life that after our death, through Christ, we extend our physical life eternally with God. And there's a second aspect that this life that we're going to have, it comes from knowing God. And He gives us a life that's no more condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this eternal life starts now. We don't have to wait. The moment we believe in Jesus. So I found one little booklet very helpful for myself in my own work. It's Tim Keller's book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And he has a very simple thesis. He says this. He says, every day, every day, every one of us here, we are on trial. Every day, the moment we wake up, we seek to please others, to meet the standards of the world. And so when we perform at our best that day, you feel good about yourselves. But on that day you fail to live out to your expectations or the expectations of others, we feel condemned. We crumble completely. And even when we do well compared with others, all it takes is just one feedback and it knocks the wind out of our system. And so in our fear of condemnation, what drives us in our lives is not to bless our neighbour, because what drives us is to beat our neighbours, to prove that we are better than them. Which is why we find it so hard to rejoice in the success of others. And that's why when we quarrel, we always want to win. And if you have such a mindset, and we all do, what makes us alive within us each morning when we wake up is not the Holy Spirit. It is only the adrenaline overdose. It comes from the fear of being condemned, a fear of failure. And when we judge ourselves each day because our hearts are deceitful, we don't even know if we are good enough for ourselves. We beat ourselves up. We become the greatest slave driver of ourselves. We work harder, take on more tasks, we achieve more, and we earn more so that we can consume more and hope that people will not judge us but accept us. And we hope that one day we can even accept ourselves. So in the end, we think that we are alive by our activities, but we are actually dead. Because if we are constantly fighting our own fears of condemnation, fighting our own affirmation for self-worth, how can we even be a blessing to others? Like the Jewish leaders we saw, they were so afraid of being unclean. And how can they even welcome Gentiles into the temple? So for me, sometimes I can get so many suggestions telling me what to do, or feedback on how I can do better, that I crumble under the weight of these expectations, actually Monday mornings. And at times, I can be afraid of offending people where I don't give them what they want, and when I see that they're unhappy with me, and so in the end, I get so stressed up by my fear of failure or my fear of condemnation. But here's the irony, isn't it? I'm a pastor supposed to proclaim eternal life given by God's grace, but I'm so stressed up by my own performance of works. And so one day, my primary three son noticed me in this manner, and he tried to calm me down. He didn't do the whoa, 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 whoa. He didn't do that. You know what? That's what he said to me. He said this, don't take it personally. I look at him incredulously, you're only eight years old. Where do you learn to speak like this? Then he took out his favorite book, Geronimo Stilton, and showed me a page. Don't take it personally. So while it's good for us to be humble, for me to humble to listen to my son, I think it's also very important to be humble to listen to God's son. And let's see in John 10, 10 what he says. He says the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. And I've come that they have life and have it to the full, abundant life. 
The thief is Satan. He only comes to condemn. Jesus never condemns us. He comes to convict. There's a huge difference. He convicts us of our sins, like light shining in darkness, so that we are driven towards him to be saved. Satan comes to condemn, to make you feel hopeless, to say God doesn't love you anymore, and fill your mind with negativity and hopelessness. And that is his voice. So how can we get this abundant life that Jesus wants to give us, the full life? Verse 24, chapter 5, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes, him who sends me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. What he means is this, those who believe in him, there will be a change in status that whoever believes in Jesus will cross from death to life, from condemnation to commendation. Because of his condemnation on the cross, even though that he's sinless, he washed us perfectly clean. And because he has risen from the dead, he has raised up a new temple, we can go to him to find forgiveness and salvation and to know God's deep love for us. So in the words of Tim Keller, he said this, Jesus faced the trial that should be ours so that we no longer, we do not have to face any more trials. Amen? Jesus went to the trial, to the courtroom, to throw you out of the courtroom. I no longer wake up every day trying to perform to save myself from condemnation. Instead, I wake up every day and enjoy the fact that I'm no longer under trial all because of his generous love for me. In Singlish, because of God's generous love, we can no longer be kyasu. And because Jesus was condemned for us, we no longer are kyasi. If you don't understand, talk to me after service. And that is why the writer John records for us the signs performed by Jesus, starting from the first sign of changing water into wine at the wedding to the last sign of his death and resurrection, so that we know who He is, so that we can believe in Him and have life, full life in His name. And recently, my wife and I noticed that our 11-year-old daughter has a favourite line in what she says. See, every time she has a favourite food or have an enjoyable time, she will proclaim loudly, this is the best day of my life. Now, this sounds really funny to us as adults because she's only 11. And what does she know about life? What does she know about her future life and that she can say now is the best compared to the future? No way, right? But when the next day comes, again she'll say, this is the best day of my life. And she said this almost every day until school starts. <laughs> but then we realized that when she said it, she really meant it. All it takes for her was just enjoy the moment. All it takes for her was just to trust that her parents will always love her. And we who are so sinful as parents could love us so much. How much more does our Father in heaven, who is holy and sinless, love us? So how do we know of God's general love for us? All we need to know His generous love is to look to the cross. Like John the Baptist said, Look, look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's how we know He loves us. And because of His great faithful love, Every day, my friends, 
Every day is the best day of our lives. Every day, let us no longer live for the judgment of others. Let us no longer live for our own judgment because our hearts are deceitful and our own judgment is also flawed. Instead, let us live for the judgment of the one and only one that matters, the judgment of the one and only God. Because in Christ, in His eyes, there is now no more condemnation. In this way, people give you feedback, you became just like this, feedback. For us to humbly consider, but never to stumble and crumble over it. And every day, we wake up to receive grace upon grace, even when at times are difficult, even when at times we don't understand. We receive grace upon grace, day by day, until we feast again with our Lord Jesus at the greatest party ever thrown in the entire universe, the wedding feast of Jesus the groom and the church, his bride. In the meantime, every day is the best day of our life. And that is faith. That's eternal life. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we who do not know our own hearts and you who know our very own hearts, you do not condemn us. You came to save us, to identify with us, to tell us that you don't despise us and that we can lean and trust in you. So help us each day to wake up and remember the wonderful grace of yours, the gospel that we need to preach to ourselves. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.